Well, greetings and grace to you in the precious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on this Lord's Day. How exciting it is to be, as we've sung, those whom He saves are His delight. And so, Saint, you need to know that today, that if you're here and you are a child of God, He delights in you. He sees all your foibles, your failures, your sins, your weaknesses. He delights in you. Because when He looks at you, He doesn't really see you, though He loves you. He sees the perfect righteousness of His Son, whom He loves so much. And we get to be those who experience that love between the Father and the Son. And so it's wonderful to be here around God's Word. If you're visiting with us, we are working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of John. We're so glad that you're here. We'd love for you to join us and stay with us as we look at this Gospel that John Calvin said really gives to us the very soul of Jesus. The other Gospels are the arms and the legs, he said, but the Gospel of John is the very soul of Jesus. You know the purpose of the Gospel of John. You remember John chapter 20, verse 31, these things were written so that one might believe. Everything that John writes is pressing that the reader would believe in Jesus, that He is the Messiah, the Son of God, and then then having believed that that person would then have life in His name. And what a joy it is to have life in Jesus' name. I trust as you go through the week, Day by day, you come front and center with your own sin, the battle with your own flesh. You see how beautiful Jesus is to you. Well, we continue our journey through John and we've begun to walk into John chapter 12. And this morning, we're going to focus on verses 12 through to verse 19. And so let's read that together and then we'll set sail as it were. So follow along with me in your Bibles, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet Him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, that they had done these things to him. And so the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. And for this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. May God bless the reading of His holy and sufficient word to us. Let's pray. Father, we come before You acknowledging that You're good and holy, that You're the creator of the world, the sun, moon and stars, the ocean, the seas, the rivers, the mountains and us. And so, Father, we come as those who truly have been saved and made your delight and who are the recipients of your unfailing love. Lord, that unfailing love exists in the midst of our pain and our sorrows, our joys, our griefs, our blessings. And one of the great blessings for us is to come together on the Lord's day and sit under your word. And we believe in the Holy Spirit and we pray, Lord, would you please attend the preaching of your word, attend the hearing of your word, and would you grow us and mold us, would you afford us, as you do do each and every day, to grow more and more like our precious Savior, 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we begin, a little bit of a theological journey for you. God created the heavens and the earth. We praise Him that He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And He created man, male and female, He created them. And the first man that He made was Adam. And God entered into something that is very much akin to a covenant with Adam in the garden. And you could say, very rightly, that Adam was the king of the world. He was the king of the garden, if you will. And then we know that Adam failed miserably and fell and the kingdom was lost. We know that God then entered into a covenant with Noah and that is very much a kindness of God, common grace covenant, if you will, where God promises humanity will never be destroyed like that again as it was in the flood. And that really sets the table, if you will, for humanity to be redeemed from that humanity that will never be destroyed. From among that humanity will be a people chosen for God's own possession. And they'll experience joy because that joy comes as things are further unfolded when God makes a covenant with Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham. It's a gracious covenant that that people will be saved through belief. You remember from Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's a very gracious covenant. God promises Abraham many things. He promises that from among Abraham will come descendants that are so innumerable from the stars, you cannot count them. But he also says this, that kings will come from your loins, Abraham. Kings will come. And Genesis 49 tells us that there'll be a king that will come from the tribe of Judah. And we know that the Lord Jesus comes from Judah. And then after God makes a covenant with Abraham, He then makes a covenant with David, the royal line of David, the Davidic covenant that promises us a king will come. And so what we're about to look at this morning as we have just read about King Jesus, the King of Israel, entering into Jerusalem. He is this long-promised, long-awaited King. This is the King's entry this morning. We'll see a little bit about that today, how and why King Jesus enters in. This portion here appears in all four Gospels. Generally, that indicates it's of utmost importance to us. Each gospel looks at it from a very different angle. And yet, what this entry has been commonly referred to is the triumphal entry. Well, I want to tell you, there's not much triumphal about this entry here this morning. And we'll learn more about that. There's a beautiful song from a good little band from Australia, City of Light. They sing a song called Jerusalem. And this is how it opens, see him in Jerusalem, walking where the crowds are. Once they, these streets had sung to him, and now they cry for murder. Such a frail and lonely man, holding up the heavy cross. See him walking in Jerusalem on the road to save us. And so we'll consider a little bit about this king of ours entering into Jerusalem in his final entry. And like all scenes here in our narrative, they unfold. And so the first scene we'll see, the first of four scenes we will see this morning in our passage that will show us more about our king so as to warm our hearts a little more to King Jesus. The first of those that we'll see if you're taking notes this morning is number one, no small amount of frenzy in verses 12 to 13. No small amount of frenzy. Look at verse 12. On the next day. Well, what's that talking about? Well, that's after Mary's extravagant act of humble and unashamed worship that we considered last time 
we were together in John's Gospel, you know it, where Mary took that expensive, pure nard, a, a year's worth of wages, and she poured the whole bottle out and she undid her hair, which was totally countercultural. She had no regard for what people thought of her in her worship for Jesus. The day after that, here we are, the next day. The next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, well, what feast? That's the Passover feast. The Passover feast was one of the three major feasts that all the Jews, all of Israel was to observe. They came from everywhere. Josephus, a Jewish historian who was actually alive at the time, he wrote that at times there were over, get this, two and a half million people who would come to the Passover. That's a lot of people. No small amount of people all coming up to Jerusalem because you always went up to Jerusalem. Such was the holy city's location. And what verse 12 tells us is, as they were all going up, many of them had heard that Jesus was also heading up as well. And so they start grabbing palm branches out of all things. There's many things they could have grabbed, but they start grabbing palm branches and they were from what is called the date palm tree. Some of you have been there and apparently these trees are all over the place still to this day. And so people grab the palm branches and they start waving them, holding them, perhaps even laying them down on the ground. And I recall ever since I first read this as a new believer, it all seemed kind of odd and yet normal to me in some kind of weird paradox, but I never really understood why palm branches. Why palm branches? Well, if you've been with us all through our time in John's Gospel so far, you would recall back in John 7 that there was another feast that was actually, as you may recall, the most premier of all the three feasts. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles. John 7, Feast of Tabernacles was taking place. And we read in this 37th verse of John chapter 7 this, On the last day of the great day of the great feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You remember from our time there, let me remind you if you've forgotten, the priest would go and collect water from the pool of Siloam. He would walk back through what is known the water gate. He would, before the people, lift up the water and pour it out. The people actually would cry out, let us see the water, let us see the water. But on the last day, the priest didn't go and collect the water. The priest didn't come back through the water gate and the priest didn't pour out the water. And it was on that day, you remember, and how amazing it was that it was on that day when no water was being collected or lifted up before the people and poured out that Jesus would stand there and say, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Well, I explained back then how at that feast, the people not only would ask to see the water being poured out, but they would also come with a piece of fruit in their hand and a palm branch in the other hand, symbolizing how Yahweh had cared for them out in their wanderings, providing for them food and shelter. But that was not the first experience that the nation had had with palm branches. Because something happened in the second century BC, that is before Christ, where the temple in Jerusalem was ransacked, it was desecrated by a man named Antichius Epiphanes. He desecrated the temple. I believe he sacrificed pigs on the altar. He did all sorts of terrible things. He attacked Jerusalem. He attacked the temple. And that attack brought with it counterattack. Often that's what happens. And the counterattack came from a man named Mattathias. Mattathias. He gathered a militia army and he began to take back the temple. And in his work in that, as he began, he died. He died. And his son, Judas Maccabeus, took charge. You may remember him from John chapter 7. His nickname was the Hammer. The Hammer. And so you can only imagine what he was like in battle. He became a hero of the nation. 
of Israel. Because due to his fighting back, the enemy that had come by Epiphanes had come and taken over the temple, they actually gave it back. They gave it back and there was massive celebration, you can imagine, when that temple, so precious to them, was given back to them. They fought for it. It was given back to them. There was a massive celebration and that became known as the Feast of Dedication, one of the other three feasts. Or it's also called the Festival of Lights. Or what else is it called? Hanukkah. It's called Hanukkah. It's practiced still to this day. Down the track from all that, Judas Maccabeus's brother then took over and he rid Jerusalem altogether and Israel altogether of that army, that enemy, and they really began to celebrate. And you know what they did in that celebration? They waved palm branches around. And then further down the track, the Jews would then rise up against the Romans and revolt against the Romans. And they actually would then have their own currency. And they minted a coin. And you know what was printed on that coin? You guessed it. A palm branch. A palm branch. Moses was instructed by God in connection with these feasts in Leviticus chapter 23 verse 40 to, quote, take palm branches and rejoice before the Lord. And so we need to see this, that the palm branches were a symbol to the nation of Israel of victory in war, in battle. Everything in victory in overthrowing the Romans, which would come later from here, victory in politics, victory, victory. So, all that to say, when the masses of people, 2.5 million people, are making their way up, and then the Lord knows how many, maybe a million people, turn as they hear that Jesus is coming, they grab palm branches. They are compelled to look for palm branches as they are walking up to Jerusalem. Because they are compelled to grant entry in a very celebratory way to a warrior king. Who is going to overthrow all their oppressors. To usher in a utopian dynasty. They're excited, they are frenzied in their heart that the oppression that they are experiencing from the Romans is about to end and so they grab the national symbol of victory in war and they wave it and they lay it on the ground as King Jesus makes his way up and we see their excitement in verse 13, look there, they took the branches of the palm trees, they went out to meet him and they began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They're shouting it, they're excited, there's a frenzy. Imagine a million people with palm branches, waving them around, shouting this. It's no small frenzy. The word Hosanna means in the literal sense, save now, save now. And the phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, both Hosanna, the word Hosanna and that phrase, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are straight out of Psalm 118. You can go and read it this afternoon. Straight out of Psalm 118. And you see, as these Passover pilgrims made their way up to Jerusalem, they would sing Psalm 118. In fact, Psalm 118, all the way back to Psalm 113, what a are what is known as the Hallel Psalms. You hear Hallel, praise, Yah, Yahweh, Hallelujah, praise Yahweh. They would sing those Psalms on their way up. And so these people are singing as they ascend to Passover. And what I need you to know is many, many, many of them, the vast, vast majority of them are just saying this from religiosity. It's just a practice, just a religious thing for them to be doing. 
It's not from their heart. This year, particularly more than any other year, they are caught up in in the excitement of this Jesus, who, who we know has been performing many miracles. Word has spread about Jesus. Many of them have, have, have observed Jesus do miracles before their very eyes. And they're caught up. They're caught up in hailing. They even say He's the King of Israel. And Jesus is. But I need you to understand that Jesus is not like they think, which we'll soon see because here they have misplaced enthusiasm. And here's something really to note down. I want you to see this here as Jesus is, is arriving and, 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 and they begin to shout a million people. Nowhere do we read Jesus telling them to, to stop and be quiet and go away. You know, we can trace back through Jesus' ministry up until this point prior, that's what He did. You can count so many times where Jesus performed a miracle, the people said, whoa, and He said, don't tell anyone. Make sure you don't tell anyone. But here now, He does not refuse to receive praise. You know, on God's grand calendar, this is the moment where God the Father is setting the scene for God the Son. There's another thing to note down. For the years prior that Jesus has not allowed Himself to be publicly praised in this way, something else has happened as well. Every time there has been a positive public response to Jesus, He reacted in a certain way. Back in John chapter 2, verse 23, we read this, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, obviously not this one, the ones prior, during the feast, many believed in his name as they observed his signs, which he was doing. Sounds good. Until you read the very next verse. The very next verse says this, but Jesus was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all people and because He did not need anyone to testify about mankind, for He Himself knew what was in mankind. You remember, they were believing in Him, but Jesus was not believing in them. That's how I put it in the sermon. That's a sad reality with masses of people. They believe in Jesus, but Jesus doesn't believe in them. Now, we know that a very simple trust gets the same strong Savior as the Puritans used to say. A very simple trust in Jesus. When you come by grace, stripped of all self-righteousness and no longer resting and trusting in your righteousness, but wholly leaning on Jesus' righteousness to save you, a very simple, small trust gets a strong Savior. So when you hear that many were believing in Jesus and Jesus wasn't believing in them, don't think that what I just said about a simple trust is not true. What is intended by that is they came with the wrong motive. They were shallow in their understanding. They wanted something from Jesus. They had false expectations. In John 6, at the feeding of the 20,000, men and women and children, we read that people wanted to make Him king then and there. Do you remember that? Jesus fed the multitudes and they just wanted to make Him king then and there. Right there as well, Jesus responded to their shallow, frenzied belief when He said specific hard sayings to them. And we read in verse 66 of John 6, many of the disciples walked with Him no more. Then in John chapter 8, verse 30, we read, As Jesus spoke these things, many, it says, came to believe in Him. But get this, those same ones who said they believe, as quick as they said, we believe, they said this, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. 
Because Jesus pressed their button and he said that the son sets free those who have been slaves. And they said, we are descendants of no one. To which Jesus replied, I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me. Because my word has no place in you. He said that to those who, with no small amount of excitement, no small amount of joy, excitedly came to him wanting to make him king. And wanting to follow him with passion. That's what he said to them. And so that kind of thing has been repeated over and over in the Gospel of John. And here in our passage, this entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is the the crescendo and the culmination of that kind of thing. When just seas and oceans of people come praising Him. The masses of people crying out, Hosanna, save now. What will they do? Well, what they'll do in just a couple of days is they will cry out, not save now. They will cry out, crucify now. Isn't that incredible? But by the grace of God, that's you and I. They'll cry out, crucify him. Why? I'll tell you why. Because they did not get what they want from Jesus. They wanted Jesus to overthrow their earthly enemies. They wanted Jesus to overthrow by warring with military might to overthrow those Romans that were oppressing them. And they completely missed the point. Because they were excited and frenzied for the wrong thing. They had enthusiasm, as I said, that was misplaced. Well, a couple of quick applications in our first point here before we move on to see more about how and why Jesus enters into the holy city the way He does. Well, first application here. There are untold numbers of people who get caught up in the hype and frenzy of following Jesus who at some point along the way desert the faith, desert the church, desert the Messiah and the root cause is seen in the prime example in places like 2 Timothy 4.10 where Paul wrote of a man called Demas who what? Having loved this present world has deserted me. So many, the, the majority by far who said, Hosanna, and, and waved the palm branches and, and laid down their garments, as we read in the other Gospels, which is a very royal, regal thing to do. So many of those people, the vast majority who did that, they walked away. Before they walked away, they, they said, crucify Him. They walked away. You see, this is just one frenzy giving birth to another type of frenzy. Instead of marked, steady faithfulness and rest in Jesus Christ for who He truly is. Second, there are untold numbers of people who come to Jesus with an agenda full of expectations that they want met that are never met. The result is a lack of fulfillment. They had expectations that they would receive from Jesus things that Jesus never promised to give to be our lasting fulfillment. That only stirs bitterness and lasting sadness in the heart. You know, if this all sounds too much, just turn to Matthew chapter 7 later on, not now, (laughs) later on, and read the most terrifying words that Jesus ever said. He said, many will come to me on that day. And say, Lord, Lord, Jesus is my Lord. I emphatically declare that Jesus is my Lord. And and I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Jesus said there are many who will go by the broad road into destruction. And there are a few who will enter through the narrow gate and find life. And dear saints, you found life. You found life. 
life is hard, but you found life. You may not have everything in this life, but you found life. It's good. It's good news. If you come to Jesus wanting him to be something to you that he is not, like the people here who are wanting a military ruler who takes over the political realm and alleviates all your problems here and now prior to eternal glory, which is the place where all your problems go away. If you want that now, then it will only ever cause frenzy in your own heart, frenzy in your own mind and frenzy in your own soul. And so rest in Jesus Christ. Because the only type of frenzy to be caught up in is the frenzy of true worship of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Fueled by doctrine, true knowledge of who Jesus is revealed to us in His Word. And so first we see this kind of royal greeting that was misplaced, that was no small frenzy. That's the first scene. The second scene we now see as this entry of Jesus unfolds is number two. We see now no small amount of fulfillment, no small amount of fulfillment in verses 14 to 15. Look there, Jesus finding a young donkey. He sat on it. You'd like to do that, eh, Gio? <laughs> kids would love, you're here, you'd love to find a young do- donkey and sit on it. I know one of my kids would just grab that thing and jump on it. Finds a young donkey. Funny how it says Jesus found the donkey. Because each of the other Gospels tells us that Jesus sent two disciples into town ahead of him to get a donkey. You could preach a whole sermon on how Jesus uses instruments to accomplish his means and what a privilege it is to be part of that, but that's for another day. One thing you need to know about donkeys here is that they are not like donkeys we have here in our part of the world. Donkeys here are quite large. Sometimes you hear them and they sound like a big rusty gate swinging. In fact, out at your place, you hear the donkey and I think it's a big rusty gate. Now that's just a donkey. There's these big donkeys and they make terrible noises. And if a grown man was to run up to one of those donkeys and sit on one here, they would be in a very similar posture that you would be when you're riding a horse. Imagine just sitting on a horse, you'd be in that posture. But the donkeys in Jesus' day that Jesus got on here, they are very small, very small. When a grown man sat on one, his knees were high up, right up in fact. I thought, what's a good, will, God, what's a good way to illustrate this? Well, we grew up in Australia, and I know you have them here, and Roger Hawke, and I know you have them, little peewee 50s, little peewee 50 motorbike. Imagine a grown man on one of those little peewee 50s, the knees are right up high. And it is here now as we are considering these things, in your mind and, and, and imagination perhaps, we begin to see what Jesus is doing. He's entering in, imagine the scene, He's entering in on this little donkey. There's a million people waving palm branches and laying their clothes on the ground and this Jesus on a tiny little young donkey, never been ridden before. We'll talk about that in a moment. And he is just riding this donkey with his knees high up the way. You see, kings normally rode these majestic, valiant, that's the right word, stallions. Royal steeds, horses, kings rode horses. In fact, there's something about horses I want to share with you as I studied this during the week. I love horses. My first word ever was horse. I have the little book, first word, horse. Uh, My dad, who I lived with up until I was about three or four, maybe five, he used to train race horses and so I was always around horses. I have an affinity with horses. I've ridden them my whole life, not as much as I would like to. Need one here for the beach would be great. But let me share something with you that A.W. Pink 
was writing about that helps us see what is going on here as Jesus comes in on a tiny little donkey, young and never been ridden. We know that the nation of Israel was to be distinct in several ways. They would be utterly distinct. They were given a law to be distinct, part of it at least. And so it makes sense that her king would be distinct too. Pagan nations rode horses. Their kings were all known for their horses. You can read about it in the Bible. They were riding royal steeds. Israel's kings, though, get this, were commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16, to not multiply horses for themselves, to gather up horses for themselves. In fact, get this, the first ever sin committed by King Solomon was doing just that. And you can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 4. He, he amassed and multiplied horses for himself. Israel was distinct in not having horses to do special work, but instead was known having oxes and donkeys to do the special work. And when you think about it, all of that certainly could be, and I would say would be, the reason why Israel would say things like, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so, if it was sinful for Israel's kings to multiply to themselves and use horses in a special way, and get this, if the Mosaic law said that only unworked, unridden, unworked animals could be used for sacrificial purposes, which it does say in Numbers 19 verse 2, then I think we can rightly surmise that when Jesus chose a donkey and not a horse, and when He specified that it was to be a donkey never ridden before, He is keeping the law as the obedient one on our behalf, keeping the law as an obedient one on our behalf by purposefully choosing a donkey. You see, because a donkey, a donkey did not represent a war and a warrior winning a war. A donkey was not used by a person of war. A donkey, get this, was used by a man of peace and a priest. That's who used the donkey. And as Jesus enters in Jerusalem, He's not bent on war. The people are wrong. They're frenzied and they're wrong. He's not bent on war. He's bent on establishing peace. Peace. Peace through the shedding of His blood upon the cross which establishes peace because He Himself is our peace by His work on the cross. He's a man of peace and He also does so as a priest as He enters in because the priest presents the Lamb to be sacrificed. And so, amazingly, all while being the priest on a donkey, He is also the Lamb of God to be slain. He's the priest who offers the lamb. Be certain for sure that when Jesus comes in His second coming, He will be a man of war. And He will be on a horse. And He will execute judgment. But here as He enters Jerusalem, He's a very lowly, humble man on a donkey. In every aspect, he was obedient to the law. He had never been ridden. And he does so, obviously, to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, because that's what is there in verse 15. Fear not, 
daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a young donkey. This is foolishness to the world, isn't it? The full prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 reads this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is, he is just and he is, he is endowed with salvation. He is humble and he is mounted on a donkey. You'll notice when I just read that and when I read John here that John has taken out the words rejoice greatly and replaced them with do not be afraid. You notice that? Fear not. He took words from Isaiah 40 verse 9 and he removed rejoice greatly. Some commentators surmise that perhaps he did this because Israel had no reason to rejoice since they were actually at their heart rejecting the Messiah. We can't be too sure, but what we can be too sure about, what we can be sure about is that this was complete fulfillment, no small fulfillment of prophecy and further evidence to us that Christ the Son, get this, He was always about doing the Father's work and He was always focused on being in step and in line with the Scripture. That's our Saviour. And, and what is amazing and worthy to take to heart and we must take it to heart right now. Receive this, what I'm about to say, into the deepest parts of our heart. My heart, your heart. Being in step with God the Father and in step, in line with the Scripture means being out of step with the thoughts and views of this world. That has to be the case. Mary had no regard for what the world thought of her. She worshipped Jesus at all costs, unashamedly and humbly. You see, Jesus entering in the way He does, it's not at all the picture of the Messiah that the people of the world had and still do have. The people here on this day, they wanted that warrior king on a horse. They got the carpenter's son from little old Galilee on a tiny little donkey foolishness. This may not be the world's idea of a savior. The world has their saviors. They try and broadcast them to you and Satan wants them to attract you and draw out your heart and draw away you away draw you away into devotion to the world's saviors, but here today in our passage is God's idea of a savior. The world looks on with mocking scorn, but as Jesus comes in, the Father is well pleased. Jesus here is rightly identifying as God's true Savior, as God's true King. I want you to know that. And He appears foolish to the world instead of on a royal black, you can imagine a black stallion, with, He's on a little donkey. And every king had a herald. And, and, and every king's herald was always dressed in the finest of pomp and grandeur and clothes. And what was Jesus' herald dressed in? Camel's hair. And he ate locusts and wild honey. This is how God works. Not some application from this. Well, I'll tell you, wisdom to the world is so often foolishness to God. And foolishness to God is so often wisdom to this world. Jesus was so meek, so meek, and so humble here. He was devoted to obeying Scripture here. You know, it's been well said that the incarnate Word, that's the Lord Jesus, never contradicted the inspired word. There's no conflict between the incarnate word and the inerrant inspired word. Jesus always set about to obey Scripture and you and I need to be devoted to the same. I mean really devoted. That's the second scene. The third scene now. As we press on, 
in this entry. It's found in verse 16, number three, no small amount of fog. (laughs) There's no small amount of fog. Look at verse 16. These things his disciples did not understand. They didn't understand them. But when Jesus was glorified, this is the Apostle John giving us a so kind of John to give us this explanatory note. They didn't understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, meaning after His resurrection and after His ascension, when He was seated at the right hand of the Father, when He was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written in Him and they had done these things to Him. What does this bring to mind? Well, it brings to mind that after the Lord had resurrected and ascended, the Holy Spirit was sent. Jesus said that He would send the Holy Spirit. He said in John chapter 14, verse 26, but the, help, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. That's it right there. Charismatics have a problem. You know what one of their problems is? They think they are just going to receive divine knowledge by divine fear in a vacuum, totally excluded from knowledge of God. The Holy Spirit doesn't make those promises. The Holy Spirit promises to bring to remembrance that which we have been taught or understood or studied. The Holy Spirit's illuminating ministry is a spirit of illumination to the Holy Scripture. It is not some bizarre idea of revelation pouring in outside of the knowledge of God. One application from here, this this fog that was, they didn't understand all that was going on, but afterwards when they received the Holy Spirit, when it was sent, when He was sent to do His work, then they understood. Do you know what? application I make from this is we are certainly not like the disciples. They lived here. They lived in a very unique time. In many ways, you could say they were halfway between the Old and New Testament covenants. They lived in a very unique time. We live, they live pre-Acts 2, Pentecost. We live post-Pentecost. We have received the Spirit with, with fullness. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, One application I make from this is that you and I need to do very well to be growing in grace and knowledge. That is a command from our holy God. And we do that by getting in the Holy Spirit's way. And how we get in the Holy Spirit's way is we get up on the Holy Spirit's surgical table, if you will. And how we do that is we expose ourselves constantly to the means of grace. Because there are things that you and I do not yet understand. There is glory yet to be revealed to us about the Lord Jesus. In fact, if we were able to, there would be, this wouldn't happen, but if we were able to, we'd be able to see how much glory each, every individual has beheld of Jesus and how far along they are in that transformation from one level of Christ's likeness to the next that is promised to us in 2 Corinthians 3.18. If we're able to just view that, we might all be surprised who has and who hasn't advanced in their beholding of the glory of Christ. We're responsible to do that. There's fog still laying in certain areas concerning the person of Christ in our life. My Hebrew professor, Dr. Irv Busnitz, used to say to me, we all have an Achilles heel, Matthew, we just don't know what it is, theologically. You and I need to lay hold more and more of the Holy Spirit because it's been well said for sure that we can't have any more of Him. He's already indwelt us fully, but He can certainly have more of us. No small amount of fog. Well, to round this entry of Jesus out, we see fourth and finally no small amount of fear. In verses 17 to 19. Have a look there. The people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to testify about him. These people were the same people who had been in Bethany. They had witnessed Lazarus being raised from the dead. And they came from Bethany and joined the mass of these people. 
and, and they are there, and they're continuing to testify about Him. Now, the Lord only knows who among that crowd is truly testifying, possessing, saving faith, and those that are just like all the other crowd. The Lord only knows, but there they are. Verse 18 tells us this was the reason that they went out to meet Jesus, because they had heard that He had performed this sign, that final sign of Lazarus being raised from the dead. You remember the Gospel of John has seven signs. You remember the Gospel of John doesn't speak of miracles, speaks of signs. Why? Because signs signify something deeper than the miracle itself. And Lazarus being raised from the dead was such a significant sign, signifying that Christ has power over death and sin and Satan and that He resurrects to life and that we've been resurrected to new life. These people, they come out. But look what happens in light of all those people coming. From Bethany here that's mentioned in verse 18, who saw Lazarus, they're frenzied up still. And then all the Passover pilgrims more, two and a half million people. Look in verse 19, what the, what the Pharisees say now. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. You remember they had a council? They convened a council. Caiaphas, the high priest, he spoke very pragmatically, we saw. They convened a council. What was the agenda item on that council? Kill Jesus. What, what was the... What was the um, practical outworking of the agreement of that agenda item? Kill Jesus. And if anyone was to see him, they were to seize him and arrest him on the spot. That was the decree that went out to the nation. And so here they are now arguing among themselves, blaming one another. I don't know what Caiaphas said that day, but... They were blaming one another. See, what we plan to do and what you did and what you did is not doing any good because look, the world has gone after him. The world. The large group of people had come from Bethany after seeing Lazarus being raised from the dead. The religious leaders are in fear. Why is this no small amount of fear from the religious leaders? I'll tell you why. They would have believed that Jesus was going to do what Maccabeus of old did. That this Jesus was going to overthrow those who were controlling and oppressing the Jews, namely the Romans. And so they feared that their entire world would be taken away and I want you to know that's the sense in which they are using the word world there we know that the whole world is not going to Jesus they are in a frenzy of fear it was though the whole world was going to this Jesus and what did they say earlier on in John if we don't do something he is going to come the Romans are then going to come and our place and our prestige and our power and our position is going to be taken away from us. They're in fear here. The word world in John's gospel, it always speaks to people from every ethnicity rather than every person in the world without exception that's how the gospel of john speaks and uses the word world the whole world has gone after him pilgrims from all places all ethnicities mark 14 tells us that the religious leaders even said at this moment don't seize him during the feast because the people will riot. They were so afraid of losing their power and their prestige. How opposite it was for Jesus. 
feel the weight of that. How opposite it was for Jesus. He came not desiring power nor prestige. He was humble and in God's economy, he who exalts himself is humble. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. These religious leaders here loved their position. Their position was their satisfaction, their joy, their all. But for our King, Jesus, His satisfaction, His joy, His all was being in step with God the Father, being God's delight as He was in step with Scripture and out of step with this world. Too often, and our passage makes this abundantly clear, our expectations of what Jesus will be to us and what he will do for us are not met. And it causes problems. Our king, who is the king of kings and lord of lords, entered Jerusalem on this day. And there were palm branches waving everywhere. And those palm branches were then dropped and thrown onto the ground. But guess what Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 says. John who wrote this book writes Revelation. And he says this. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count. From every ethnicity. Every tribe and people and tongues. Were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. You're going to get a palm branch. I'm going to get a palm branch. And we are going to worship the King of Kings for all eternity. You know the rest of the prophecy in Zechariah 9, 9? It says this in the very next verse. I will cut off the chariot and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he, that's Jesus, shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. Everywhere. From the river to the ends of the earth. See him in Jerusalem, walking where the crowds are. Once these streets had sung to him, and now they cry for murder. Such a frail and lonely man, holding up, the heavy cross, see him walking or riding in Jerusalem on the road to save us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. Lord, thank you that you take you take a you take our frailty and our sinfulness and you, you shed your mercies upon us every morning and you see fit to use us as instruments. Lord, we read that your son found a donkey, but we know he sent his disciples to go get one. Lord, we've read of this king entering in and being focused on obeying the Father and being lockstep with the Father and obeying Scripture and being lockstep with the Scripture and we, we want to be that as well. Lord, so often our flesh rules and reigns. Lord, may, it, may that change today. Please, Lord. May we be moved to see him in Jerusalem. As he enters in. And Lord we think about 
the multitudes of people who believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. We've seen a lot of no small amount, but Lord, you know that a very small trust, a small amount of trust, and we get King Jesus. Thank you for giving us that trust as a gift. Lord, move our hearts to live and love more in light of Christ's living and loving for us. Bless our fellowship now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.